Hi folks, Bob Main here with another episode of today's Survival Show, where it's my goal to help you harness the power of choice to live life the way you want to live it on your own terms and strengthen your resolve. I try to keep this practical. This is not a tinfoil hat type of show. No conspiracy theorists. I'm not going to start preaching that the world's coming to an end any day now. You know, that that kind of stuff, there's other podcasts and stuff out there. I'm just too practical of a person for that. I just keep this rooted in common sense. And this is episode number 114. It's Monday the 18th. You're probably going to listen to this on Wednesday the 20th by the time I get it released of October 2010. I'm going to talk about survival networking today. Building your sphere of influence. I've mentioned this a couple of times. It's one of the principles of my show and, and some of the things that I live by is networking. I'm a big believer that it's not what you know, it's who you know. Would you agree with me on that? Sometimes it's just as important to know people, to know certain people. And this applies to whether you're in business, even in your community, whether it's a disaster or even if it's not a disaster. Your sphere of influence, the people that you hang around with, you know, I like to say that we're a product of the company we keep. My old mentor, Tom Hopkins, taught me that years ago, that we're, the, we're a product of the company we keep. And that's so true. So I'm going to talk about what happens before and after a disaster on putting together people. And I'm going to give you some ideas and, and some details on how to do that. I'm calling it survival networking. That's pretty much the main topic of the show. And so let's dive right into it. Let's assume for a minute that some unforeseen disaster has taken place. And it's pretty much wiped out communication, either temporarily or for a long term, and it's disabled the power, the highways are blocked, people are panicking everywhere, riots have begun, martial law is in effect, now you're thinking, wait a minute, Bob, you just said you're a practical show. You just said you're a practical guy and you don't get involved in far out thinking. Well, you know what, it's probably not too far out of the realm of possibility that we could have uh, 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 panics and and, and riots taking place and looters and, and, and highways being blocked and power being out. These are occurrences that could easily happen. Whether it's a natural disaster, whether it's a terrorist attack, whether it's a man-made disaster, what happened, whatever, what have you. So what are you supposed to do in that kind of a situation? First thing I want to talk about is staying calm. Now, this is hard. I mean, just in ordinary, everyday challenges, sometimes it's tough for me to stay calm. It's one of, one of the things I struggle with, is trying to stay calm and not get too wired up. My personality is, is the type where I'm, I'm kind of an animated kind of a person anyway. And just by my very nature, I sometimes get worked up pretty easily, even over some of life's smallest challenges. Ever happened to you? Staying calm is important. The number one thing you have to do in any kind of an emergency is to stay calm. Now, use this time to focus on your inventory and your preparedness and the planning that you've put forth all this time to stay alive. Because the days that are going to come after a disaster are going to be critical. And you've got to keep your family unit cohesive and close as well. So the first thing in your survival networking is keeping your family unit cohesive. I'm a big believer in family before and after a disaster. And make sure that those of your family that are at school or at work, make sure that they make it home safely. 
Okay, once they're home safe, then you can start preparing everybody for what happens next, for what's to come. But the first few hours... It's been proven over and over again for folks that the first few hours after a disaster, when it comes to rallying your family and making sure that they're safe, they're the most critical hours. And they can be the catalyst for either your survival or your demise. Okay, so I've got a whole lot more on this subject, but I think this is a good time right now to play a brief audio clip. Uh, I found a guy on the internet, brianbrody.com. Brian Brody, B-R-A-W-D-Y. Uh, pretty good. He's got a pretty good video podcast. He's got a pretty good website. So let me go ahead and refer you to his website, brianbrody.com. I'm going to go ahead and play a little clip from some of his material for you, for you to listen to. And I'm going to link to his website in the show notes. So you'll be able to find a link to all this as well. But he just talks about overall kind of survival generalities. And this is a good reminder. See, I want to start off this uh, survival networking episode by giving you a reminder of some of the things that you should be doing first to, you know, right now to get prepared for both short-term and long-term disasters. You know, it, it's hard for me to do a show like this to talk about networking and so forth and gathering people and like-minded people without going over a quick reminder of short-term and long-term disaster preparations. Now, this is going to be pretty short and sweet. I'll start with Brian's audio clip and then go from there. So here you go. Here's a good... Um, couple of minutes worth of tips from brianbrody.com. Here you go. I'll be right back. An outdoor adventure expert rolls into town on his custom-built RV green bus to teach local students ultimate survival skills. SNN Local News 6 reporter Jessica Jordan is live at Sarasota Military Academy where she hopped on board that bus earlier today. Jessica, what did you find? Well, that's right, Mia. You may consider camping out in an RV, roughing it. But the one we stepped on board today has everything you would need to survive and a few modern luxuries that you may not even have at home. If you lose your power, you lose your water, you lose your ability to keep your food cold or the like, would you be able to survive? Survival expert Brian Brody travels around the country to show people how to survive in the face of a natural disaster. He's hitting the road on a 48-state tour in his custom RV. It's powered by wind and solar energy. He got the idea to build it while working as a journalist in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Seeing how unprepared people were for a natural disaster, he wanted to do something to help them. They lose their power, their water, their food, their security, their ability to just have a normal, you know, things you and I might take for, things I suspect we would all take for granted. Amenities like clean water, internet, and air conditioning, all here on the bus. Tuesday, Brody stopped off at Sarasota Military Academy to let students step on board to see the mobile wonder for themselves. Pretty cool how he actually grabbed all the solar power and the, and the wind turbines and everything to adjust to nature like that. I didn't expect the big screen TV at all. During Brody's demonstrations, he talks about his certification in wilderness first aid and gives audiences tips on how to customize their homes to make them more energy efficient. Survival through self-reliance. You know, the question I ask all the time is, when you can't call on anyone else, can you call on yourself? To read more about his daily adventures, you can visit brianbrody.com. Jessica, what are some of those energy efficiency tips that people can do at home? Well, he says it's just simple things like changing out the light bulbs for LED lights. He also says by tinting the windows in your home, obviously that keeps it cooler in the summer and warmer in the winter, and all of that works to cut down on your electric bill. All right, thank you. Jessica Jordan reporting. Now, I would like to add just a few things to that. Water. 
Remember, a gallon per person per day, minimum one week supply per family member. This is one of my biggest challenges. Somebody started a forum post recently about um, water and uh, water storage and stuff. It's tough. It's tough, but at least have the basics. Set a goal of having 30 days worth of water. And uh, the ability to purify water is important as well. Even if it's doing something like adding a small amount of bleach, just a little bit. I mean, you know, 12, 13 drops of liquid bleach to a gallon of water uh, and let it sit for 30 minutes. Stuff like that. Water purification tablets. Ways to harness and purify water, always critical. Juices. You know, I've never talked much about what to store in terms of liquids, but canned juices. Um, you know, juices are very nutritious when they're in cans. They're easy to store. They're easy to store for long term. So check your storage. Make sure you got some juices in there. And soups. I've never talked too much about soups as well. Uh, smoked and dried meats. I love beef jerky. I love canned meats. So let me just throw that reminder out there. Canned milk. Uh, vitamins, which was talked about. That's so important. And stress foods. Um, and high energy foods, things like that, high energy bars and so forth with lots of calories in them and nuts and trail mix. and These are called feel-good foods. Okay, Something else I've never talked much about, but uh, charcoal, storing charcoal. Always have alternative ways to cook. Always have another means to cook. Uh, let's say, for example, you run out of gas for your gas grill. All right, You can throw charcoal in it. You can use it as a charcoal grill. So as long as you've got several different ways to cook something... You know, if there's going to be a power outage, gas and charcoal might be your only means that you have left. I know some of you have cook stoves. Some of you on the forum talk a lot about your cook stoves and so forth. That's fantastic. You can even use Sterno to cook. So have multiple different ways. I would say probably six or seven different ways to cook things. That's, that's an important survival reminder that I wanted to throw out there as well. I talked about cash recently in one of my most recent episodes Plenty of cash. I'm a firm believer in that. Uh, your safe deposit box keys, an extra set of vehicle keys, non-electric can openers, plenty of knives, pliers, duct tapes, compasses, excuse me, duct tape, <laughs> compasses, um, matches in waterproof containers, all the basics like that, a whistle, rain gear, blankets and sleeping bags since the winters, winter months are coming and the colder weather is coming. All this kind of stuff. Even sunglasses. Don't forget good quality sunglasses with good UV protection. I did cover this on a show a few weeks back, but I want to say it again. Even in the wintertime, folks, don't neglect you know these little things like this. Whenever there's some kind of a disaster, you'd be amazed. Sometimes the little things loom large. And these could be items that could be pretty hard to find after a disaster and they don't take up much room to store and I you know I learned some of this stuff even just when I was a teenager you know when I grew up in Wisconsin my mom was real thrifty and she always believed in being prepared and she always believed in having stuff you know sometimes we had too much stuff but that's okay uh, recently I went through some decluttering and I realized that my too much stuff upbringing kind of sometimes makes me collect a little bit too much so my wife and I recently did some downsizing and and some consolidating of some of the items that we had and it feels good 
Feels good to consolidate and downsize, but I just want to remind you that probably you could get, I would say, four or five Rubbermaid containers, decent-sized Rubbermaid containers, and you can fit a good 30 days' worth of supplies, not, not food, but a good 30 to 45 days' worth of supplies in those Rubbermaid tubs, and then, you know, add your food storage, and you're probably not talking a lot of room. You know, maybe you're only talking about a half of a room worth, a half of a small bedroom in your house or in your apartment to keep yourself going, and depending on your family size, for maybe month, two months, three months, maybe even longer. So I think what I'm going to do before I get into survival networking here is I'm just going to go ahead and make a post on the forum. I'm going to start a thread about some of the basic reminders of supplies. I'm not going to get real detailed, but I but watch the uh, forum thread. And by the way, this is going to be a good announcement or a good time for me to do the announcements real quick and talk about the forum since this is about survival networking. This particular podcast, one of the best ways to network and start building people that you know that can help you in a disaster is by joining our forum, Today's Survival Show Forum. Go to todayssurvival.com, the main website, click the forum page, it'll take you to where you want to go, and get signed up. There are a lot of people that are looking to network. Somebody recently from Arizona wants to network. There's some people on there from other countries. There's people from all parts of the United States that are on there. Check it out, todayssurvival.com. And click the forum tab. I also have a special announcement that I want to talk about the CD and the digital download that I'm putting together. Um, As you folks know in listening to my show, I like to keep this relatively commercial free. So I'll keep this real quick. I don't have paid sponsors on this show. But what I like to do is I like to bring you some good content and good information and continue doing it. There are a few bills to pay, so what I've decided to do is to create a CD or a digital download. I'm going to put together some material that I've not covered on my shows. I've got some ideas, some good ideas, and I'm going to kind of combine this. I do two podcasts. I do the Handgun World Show on guns, and I do this show here, today's survival show on preparedness. So I'm going to make about, oh, I would say about an hour-long CD, maybe an hour and 15 minutes or so. It's going to be a special version. It's going to be something that you have not yet heard on this show. So it's going to be exclusive contact content from me. And i got a few other sources of content that I think you're really going to enjoy. And I'm going to put it together into one easy-to-listen-to format. You can either get a CD from me. The benefits of getting a CD is you can pass that around to family members. Uh, You can also burn your CDs to your iPod or your MP3 player. Or you can just get a digital download. In other words, you can download it from the website at todayssurvival.com in MP3 format. It'll be available December 15th in time for Christmas. So if I have to mail you a CD, you should get it before Christmas. might make a good Christmas present for you or a good Christmas present for somebody else, especially somebody you might want to turn on to the preparedness field. I keep it real common sense. I don't get real radical, so they should like it, and uh, they should find it something pretty easy to listen to. You're going to get that CD or that digital download for only $15, including shipping if you get the CD. So check it out. You'll see a page at todayssurvival.com. I'm taking orders right now. I'm using Google Checkout. I try not to use credit cards. You know, I'm a big believer in not going into debt. One of the major hallmarks of someone who believes in preparedness is staying out of debt. So please, uh, I would rather that you wait uh, until, you, until you can afford to, uh, to send me cash or use your debit card uh, to pay for it. Uh, you can also do an e-check uh, on Google Checkout. But you know, if you do have to put it on a credit card, folks, please pay it off right away. Pay it off in 30 days. Okay? 
But you'll find a link at todayssurvival.com. There's a buy now button there. And there's also a page where I'm going to start. I'm going to start listing the topics of what's going to be on that CD. By the time you hear this, I'm going to have the first couple topics put up there. So you'll be able to get a general idea of what the CD is going to be about. So go to the, uh, uh, the page on todayssurvival.com that says, that says, um, uh, TSS and Handgun World Show Combo CD. And that'll be a great way for you to support my show and uh, and keep the bills paid and so forth. And I think you're going to enjoy it. So that's it. That's enough of my commercial that I wanted to cover. Uh, but if you would uh, support my show and do that, I appreciate it. The podcasts are always going to be free. This is a great time, and I have a lot of fun doing this. All right. So let's move into social, I'm sorry, <laughs> survival networking. Let me give you an example of how to set up a team. I think it's all about teamwork. The first step in gathering your team is to put out a call to citizens in your area that might be concerned about survival when it comes to disasters. There are several ways that you can do this. Um, I know somebody that emailed me and said that basically they just went around their neighborhood door to door and they hung up pieces of paper uh, just asking people if they were interested in setting up a preparedness group in the neighborhood, a, a general practical preparedness group. And uh, he emailed me and he said he got about three or four responses within a week after he did that. And there was his first handful of people. Uh, if you have the email addresses of people near you, you can do that as well. If you live in a suburban neighborhood like I do, uh, you may have email addresses. Uh, go to your local homeowners association. And you're going to meet people at your homeowners association. You might want to contact them and, and tell them about your idea to set up a preparedness group. Uh, they may even help you. They may help you get the word out. They may give you email addresses or mailing addresses. And let them know you'd like to be the leader of the group or you'd like to be one of the leaders and, and co-found the group. And set up a survival preparedness group. Once you've got some people assembled, talk about their skill sets and their knowledge base, what resources they have. I would make your first meeting. All right, let's say you set up a team, a neighborhood team. I would make your first meeting all about finding out what the skill sets are of the people that you live near. What do they know? What ex uh, expertise do they have? What training classes have they recently completed? You might not want to get into real personal questions like what kind of supplies that they have because some people might not, until they get to know you better, until they start to warm up and feel that they can trust you and so forth, they might not want to tell you what supplies that they have. But they may be able to tell you what skills that they have and they might be willing to do that. And think about this. If they're already at a preparedness group meeting, that means that they're interested. So you've pretty much got a warm market once you've brought people together. After you have your contacts made, after you've got your meeting scheduled, um... Ask the group for some suggestions. Now, I've got a lot of experience in facilitating groups. For seven years, that's all I did is I made my living uh, giving public speeches, facilitating groups, and facilitating group training of all different types. And one of the things I found is asking questions is key. Asking questions, asking people questions, getting them involved in the process. So in your first meeting, I would also discuss in further detail what would be the best way to make steps towards getting prepared, better, better prepared as a neighborhood and as a group. And just ask them questions. Just ask things like, hey, does anybody have any ideas as to what we could do here in the community to help get better prepared in case a disaster might hit our area? And shut up. 
Seriously, just ask the question and shut up and let people start to talk. Make sure you've got somebody with you that can take good notes. Or if you're good at taking good notes, or sit down with a laptop and type some of this stuff up. I can type fast. So when I do meetings like this, I open up my laptop, turn it on, open up Microsoft Word, and I start making all kinds of notes. Whatever you have to do, just start getting people involved by asking the right questions. They will actually tell you what they think needs to be done. And listen. Be a good listener as well. We have two ears and one mouth. Use them accordingly. It was a hard lesson I, I had to learn a long time ago. Okay. The next step, once you set up a, uh, a survival network or a team... Establish a regular meeting place. Now, you might want to use a local church. You might want to use uh, maybe the city hall if they'll let you do it. I don't know. Uh, some businesses, if they have a little extra space or if businesses have a conference room and they're near your neighborhood, a lot of businesses will let you do that. Uh, typically, I would say churches and rec centers and so forth is a good place to do that. Set up what I call a contact tree. And that contact tree is basically you've got you got the heads of the group and then you've got people in they're in charge of different areas and then it just kind of spins down from there. You got you know a couple people that are at the top, they're the organizers, you have some some what I would call department heads or people that are in charge of certain different areas and all the different contacts, the email addresses and phone numbers that they're willing to give and until you've got all the members listed there. Okay? Now you may also want to decide that this is going to be your meeting place if there's a, uh, there's a disaster. And one of the reasons I say that is, let's say there's a church in your neighborhood, and you choose that as your, as your disaster preparedness meeting site once a month. I would suggest that you designate that as your rallying point if there is a disaster in the neighborhood. Because people are used to going there. See, if you've been holding meetings for a year or two, that's where people are used to going. They're, they're thinking, oh, okay, you know what? That's the disaster preparation site. That's right. I've been going there for monthly meetings, and I've been going two or three times a year. I've been going every quarter, or I've been going every month, and I've been, been participating. People are creatures of habit. If that's where they're used to going, set that up and, and say, this is where we're going to rally. Sometimes fire stations and police stations and, and hospitals and so forth will be agreeable to letting you use their place as a meeting. And, and you know, one of the things, too, about setting up uh, survival and preparedness meetings, if you do use police stations or fire stations, it's great to get the law enforcement officers or the firemen to give speeches once in a while. That helps draw people in. You know, maybe somebody that never gave a thought to preparedness before. Maybe there's some people in your neighborhood that you want to try to get the word out to, but you're not quite sure how to do it. Maybe getting a fireman to talk about home fire safety. Just to give a quick 20-minute speech. Even things like that can help attract people to the meeting to start opening their minds toward preparedness. Okay? Also, at every meeting... This is something that I've, I've actually seen people do, and they do it quite effectively. Once everybody's at your meeting place and it's time to start the meeting, take a quick roll call. And just make believe that this was a meeting after a disaster event. And just go right down the list of, of, uh, of people and make sure that everybody is there. And uh, find out what, just ask them to remind the group what their skill set is. Even if it gets repetitive, when people start to commit that to memory... That's when a lot of good synergy starts to happen. Now, let's roll the tapes forward. Let's say, for example, a, a disaster does happen. You're prepared. You got your network together. Uh, 
here's something else I want you to think about. Let's say you go ahead and you, you have that meeting. People are used to going to that center. They're used to going to that location to meet up with you. If the disaster only happens to be of small scale, perhaps you might not need to have a lot of contact between members. But if it's on a larger scale, in other words, if it's going to last several days or weeks, I would suggest that the leaders of the group, and I'm speaking to you who are leaders of the group now, leaders of the group should head for what's called common ground. This common ground is a location where community survival group leaders from different locations all gather to meet. And a lot of people do this once a year. And a lot of times they get together and they draw up plans for how to deal with a threat. It's a good idea to keep logbooks. And the, and the logbooks are kept by the leaders uh, telling other groups about their location and how many people they have and what their supplies are. And every two months, uh, two members make the trek to an agreed-upon safe meeting place. And they inform other people about the, uh, about the camp's condition. So activate your common ground location if there is a long-term uh, tragedy. Now, I want to quickly comment about safe ground, and then I'm going to take a quick break, uh, and then I'll be back on with segment number two. But let me talk a little about pre uh, preparations for safe ground. Now, again, this is about long-term survival, a long-term survival situation. The preps and the planning for a long-term survival living situation is kind of to find some kind of a communal location away from society in a safe zone. Now, not too far out, not way out and remote. I'm not talking about going out and being some remote loners. That's not that's not practical. That's not what I'm talking about here. But you should try to find a zone that's uh, chose, choose it because of its resources that are available, the living conditions, and also don't forget about its defensibility. Make sure you have a place that is defensible. Don't neglect, please don't neglect self-defense. You know, this show is not about firearms and it's not about guns and stuff, but this is something we cannot ignore. We cannot ignore the defensibility of a strong point in a survival situation. And some of the questions you might want to consider are things like this. Is the safe ground in a place that's able to grow food and support a large group of people for long-term sustainability? Is it accessible enough for even those who are disabled or injured or older people or really young people to still be defensed. Is that a word? Defensed? <laughs> Defended against an attack from marauders and bandits. <laughs> Sorry, a little slip there. Um, are there resources like, uh, like trees for firewood and so forth? Is there a water resource? Are there buildings? Are there other resources that help you survive and limit the amount of supplies that you might need to be hauled to that safe ground site? Now, if you really want to get into this in a big way, you can do things like uh, put up water tanks and and in uh, permanent buildings and so forth beforehand. You can gather materials there as long as you can find a way to secure them and so forth. That's up to you. It's up to you whether you want to go that far or not. It depends on how close-knit your group becomes and how well you get to know each other and how well you start to bond. Okay? Now, some of you might be asking the question right now. I can almost hear you asking it right now. Okay, what next, Bob? Now what? So what happens after everybody's arrived at their safe ground encampment? 
So let's roll the tapes forward some more. Let's say a disaster has already occurred. See, you've pre-planned all this. You've gotten your group together. You've had all your meetings. You've set up your safe ground. You've set up your rallying point. You know where people are supposed to go first. Now you're headed for that safe ground encampment. Now the work and the planning takes place, and the first few days are going to be kind of tense. The leaders need to start rising up, and they need to start taking initiatives. And you know... I talked a long time ago about the 10-80-10 rule. In any, any disaster, it's natural. This is just part of natural human behavior. The 10-80-10 rule. I think this was back like in episode 19 or 20 I talked about this. You've got about 10% of the people that are going to be the leaders. You've got about 80% of the people that are going to be followers. And you've got about another 10% that are just not going to go with you. They're not going to be with the program. They're just they're going to fall off. They're going to fail. All right? And I'm, unfortunately, and they don't intend to fail. They're just not with it. They're the kinds of people that I say don't know what happened. You have those who make it happen, the 10%. Those who watch it happen, the 80%. And those that don't know what happened, the final 10%. So the leaders are going to start to take initiative. And they're going to start to set the tasks for all members of the party. Now, criticize what you want about that show, The Colony, that recently aired. There was a lot of things to criticize about The Colony, the TV show about the team of survivors. But one of the things I thought they got right, one thing I thought that they did very, very well, is finally... They got a clue. Finally, they elected a leader. They elected organizers. And it wasn't necessarily someone with the most skills, but it was someone that had organizational power. And this is what you want to find. And it may not just be one person. It might be several. You may want to delegate. This is where managers and leaders start to rise to the occasion, and they're delegating the tasks to people. And they're setting the tasks for all members of that survival party. And what are the things that this accomplishes? One of the great things about delegating, to ta delegating tasks to people after any disaster, things to do, what this really does is it starts to take people's minds away from the worries that the disaster has created. It starts to take their minds off of it. And when you start to give them productive things to do, they become less worried and less anxious and better able, be able to perform. And that's the key after any disaster and after any emergency situation, in my opinion. So I've got a lot more to say on that topic, but let's take a quick break here. About um, 15 seconds or so worth of music. I've got to take a quick break and go uh, do something. I've been, I've been dictating this partially while I'm driving to a business appointment. So I'm going to go in and take care of business, and I'll be back. For you, it's going to be about 15 seconds. For me, it's going to be quite a bit longer than that, but I'll catch you on the backside on segment number two. Talk to you in a bit. All right, back with you for segment number two again for you. That was a real short wait. I appreciate you uh, hanging in there, though. In segment number two... I want to talk about a few more things for you to consider setting up. And this is, again, if you're getting together with like-minded people that believe in getting ready for disaster preparedness, and maybe you've got some kind of an off-site retreat, maybe you're just preparing your community, uh, maybe you've built a bug-out location or something like that. And maybe you might want to think about some of this for your bug-out location. I know some of you even have cabins, and you have your own property. You've posted pictures and so forth of it on the forum, and that's good to see. 
You may want to consider having some kind of a triage building or a triage area with proper medical supplies, the first aid equipment, the medical equipment, and so forth, that's already prepared. Some of it should already be prepared or ready to go on site. Again, if you're going to do something like this, you have to have a method for securing it. I know somebody, I heard from somebody a couple months ago that said that they have, they actually share a bug out location. This was kind of a unique idea here. They actually share a bug out location with four or five other families that live in the area that they've networked together with and they've decided to set up a, a disaster plan. And at this bug out location that they share, not real sure how they have it set up, folks. I don't. They didn't give me details as to whether they're buying it, renting it, or if somebody owns it, and there's an agreement between the parties and paying fees. I don't know what they've got set up there. But they have some things that are already prepared and already ready to go, and they secured it. And they actually have gone together and they've put in an alarm system and camera systems in there that are all IP-based cameras and so forth, so they can watch and they can record events. And there's a very sophisticated alarm system that they spent a decent amount of money in there, in that place, to secure it. So they've got supplies already at their retreat, and they're secured. You might want to think about something like that. Especially for those of you that have bug out locations. Uh, don't just leave your bug out location unattended. Make sure you've got some type of security. Some of you emailed me recently about security advice. I'm in the business of home and business security. That's one of the products that I sell. I sell a lot of products, but one of them is security systems for residential and commercial. And also, um, I dabble a little bit into helping people out with camera systems and so forth and monitoring and, and things like that. So send me some questions on that. I can give you some good ideas if you want some. Uh, best way to get a hold of me is bob at todayssurvival.com. It's a good email for that. Bob at todayssurvival.com. That'll come directly to me. You may also want to have a generator there. Uh, plenty of areas for storing seeds and tools and uh, um have bathing quarters and so on and so forth and and supply sheds and, and stuff like that you know if you're gonna go through the through the uh, efforts of doing something like this and I know some of you might be thinking are you kidding me Bob you're talking about this yeah I'm talking about this kind of stuff I like to keep this show practical but I'm kinda of thinking out in advance here um, I believe you can never be too prepared and I believe you can do this stuff without getting radical I'm not saying you've got to become some kind of a crazed loner that uh, that gets together with a bunch of other people uh, that are all you know freaked out and, and you're these you're these types of people that are wandering out in the woods like vagabonds after there's a, a disaster. But you can have an organized effort at least, and you may not have just one retreat. You may have multiple areas to where you go to. If you're organizing a small community, for example, uh, let's say you're organizing a uh, a rural neighborhood or some kind of a um, loosely populated suburban neighborhood. There isn't any reason why you couldn't have a couple of different homes that specializes in having different supplies and different things on hand for the benefit of the community group. Okay? So think about that. I've always been of the firm belief that the amount of preparation for something that we might never need is better than needing it and not having it. And even if we live out our lives never having to use any kind of a location like this, or never having to never having to use a safe ground, or never never having to use our preparations, I think it's something that can be used by other people in the future. 
And it's just, I think it's a good healthy experience to go through to do this anyway. It gives you a different outlook on life. You start to think about things in a different way. You start to learn to become more frugal. You start to learn to plan your life. You start to think about different plan A's, plan B's, plan C's to everything you do. You know, that's one of the things that I've been finding in my journey through preparedness, folks, and especially since I've been doing this podcast and having to give some serious thought to putting this together to make it cohesive for you to listen to. One of the benefits that I've gotten from it is it starts to change my whole attitude and my whole outlook on life. And all of a sudden, certain things are not so important to me anymore. Certain material things are not so important to me anymore. But having plans and backup plans, those are more important. And it's a greater peace of mind. This is like a huge insurance policy, folks, is what it's like. Now, the final part of this podcast, I'm going to spend the next 15, 20 minutes or so going over some material from Furfall's blog. Uh, Furfall's in Argentina. He's got an excellent blog. If you've not been looking at it, you need to be looking at it. You need to be following his blog. A link to what I'm going to cover is going to be posted, so you can go straight to his blog. Just go to the show notes at todayssurvival.com, and you'll see what I'm talking about. But he's got a great post on there about who to become friends with, who to start networking together with to develop your survival network. Because I've, you know, I've had that question posed to me before. Who do I network with, Bob? What would you suggest? I can't think of a better way to put it than Furfall did. So, so here you go. He also uh, lists people that um, that can help you with certain things. So here's here's one of them on his list: a doctor or pharmacist. Now he says this should be pretty obvious, right? But you'd be amazed. Uh, how it could be easy to forget to have a physician or a pharmacist on your survival team. You need someone you can trust for health matters. Someone that has some training in it. It's not a bad idea to have a good relationship with someone that can help you get meds or help you learn how to treat certain conditions. And it's something that I would suggest you might want to start working on right now. Okay, cops, I mentioned earlier, the police may even help you, help you with a location to hold your survival and preparedness meetings. And of course, they might make guest appearances and talk to your group about uh, safety preparedness. You need to get to know the police. You need to know what's going on. Okay, after a disaster, sometimes things in, in news, it doesn't get spread through the news, but it might get spread through the law enforcement officials. It'll be a lot easier for you to keep track of what's going on in your neighborhood by being able to talk to your local police. To an extent, I know that they may have limited amounts of information, or they may only be willing to give out limited amounts of information, but still, it's not a bad idea to have at least a police officer or some type of a law enforcement official in your survival network. You also, it's a good idea to always be on good terms with the police so they can and, and the fire department so they can also respond fast during an emergency. And... Here's something else you might want to think about. If you end up shooting somebody in self-defense, a police officer friend in your area might save you a heck of a lot of trouble. And I've had police officers interview with me on this show before uh, talking about things like that. So get them involved. Another, another type of person you might want to have involved in your survival network is a lawyer. I know that sometimes we don't always have favorable at- opinions towards attorneys, but we should. We should have favorable opinions towards attorneys. 
You know, I don't I don't really like it when people joke about attorneys. I try not to joke about them too much because you know what? Attorneys are your best friend when you need one, aren't they? Have a good one and always have his or her number handy. Okay, another person you might want to think about having in your survival network is a currency broker. Someone that buys and sells a lot of different currencies or precious metals. You know, if that's the way that they make their living, they typically know about what to have, what not to have, what something's going to be worth after a disaster, what it's not going to be worth, and maybe where to go to try to sell it. A gun dealer, uh, a weapons dealer. I, I would say it would be an important to have a weapons dealer, somebody at least with, a, with an FFL, a federal firearms license in your survival network. I think that's pretty self-explanatory as to why you might need that, huh? How about a craftsman? All right, some some kind of an artisan or a craftsman that helps you on, on different projects. Uh, hopefully, it's someone that knows how to work with steel and work with leather and plastics and so forth. You know, sort of a fix-it person, someone who can fix gear for you and, and make equipment that maybe you didn't even think of or maybe that you can't even design yourself. Now, this next type of person is kind of interesting. This might be one that you never thought about about networking with, but someone who's a collector. All right, someone that has the personality and it, and they have the wherewithal to be a collector. Because sometimes if you're in a survival group and it's post-disaster, think about post-disaster. You might need to apply some extra leverage to persuade somebody to do something, huh? Think about that. I mean, you know, it's going to be pretty hard to, uh, to get your way because people are going to be panicked and they're going to be fear-stricken. And sometimes someone that has good enough people skills to be able to deal with people... Uh, whenever there's some kind of a, a crisis, is a good person to know. You may also want to consider networking with a machinist. Uh, pretty similar to the craftsman kind of person that I talked about earlier. Uh, machinists that can specialize in metalwork, man, they're worth their weight in gold. Farmers and ranchers. Um, obvious, you know, for the fresh food aspect, especially if it starts to get scarce. People who are good at farming and ranching, people who make their living doing it, may think of some things that you don't think of, even just out of habit, just because they've been doing it for so many years. They can help you think of some things and ways to grow food and ways to obtain food. Now, this next one I thought was kind of funny when I read it on Furfall's blog, but... After I analyzed it, I realized, you know what, he's right. He's right. A government employee, <laughs> and Furfall says, yeah, I know, it's like sleeping with the enemy, but someone that knows how the government, the dark side, how they work, somebody that knows how to get around the red tape or get through some of the red tape might be able to save you a lot of trouble after a disaster. So think about that. It couldn't hurt, could it? Okay. Let me also suggest an auto mechanic. Somebody who's good with cars and good with vehicles. I bet everybody who's thought about preparedness at one time or another has thought about, okay, well, what kind of a vehicle am I going to use if I have to evacuate? What am I going to get in? What's going to be my bug-out vehicle? Or what's going to be my emergency preparedness vehicle? And, yeah, and what are you going to do if it breaks down? This is one of my weak areas. I like to know people that know how to fix cars because I don't know how to fix cars. I wish I did. But I don't. I'm more of the people skills kind of person. I might even be more of the collector kind of guy. 
<laughs> that might be me. I might be the kind of guy that has um, some persuasive skills to try to persuade people to do things or to see things our way. I don't know. There's a few other skills I have that might play well into a survival network. Uh, I can organize. I can delegate. I can coordinate things. I can keep track of things. So I might also be the, the organizer type of person. But it wouldn't hurt to have a mechanic kind of a person on your network and part of your sphere of influence. Again, it's not what you know, but it's who you know and who can help you and who knows you. It's also a good idea to network with people that like to hunt and fish. Uh, and I like to do a lot of that. And that's something else that I can offer a group as well. Uh, some people, hunting and fishing is not their cup of tea. But it's good to know somebody like that if there's some kind of a disaster. It's good to know somebody that knows several different ways to hunt and trap and fish for food and procure food. Also, have you ever thought about a cook? Uh, somebody that you know that works at a restaurant that's a cook. Somebody that uh, is good at preparing meals in many different types of ways. Earlier in this show, I said it's important to know how to cook and have different ways to cook. But what about somebody that knows how to put recipes together? I would think after a post-disaster situation, and uh, if you've got somebody that is, even if they're not going to do all the work, they're going to delegate it, they're going to say, all right, you know, you mix this with that, and, and this makes it taste a little bit better, and this helps preserve the food a little bit more, and I know four different ways to, to cook this, and 12 different ways to cook that. That kind of a person can be extremely valuable. Even before there's a disaster, they can be val valuable, huh? <laughs> even on Thanksgiving Day for football games. <laughs> Cooks are very valuable, aren't they? I just had to throw that in there. Can you believe Thanksgiving is only a little bit more than a month away? Wow. All right. Earlier I mentioned a doctor, and I also want to say, you know, dentists. Now, there's a great book out there where there is no dentist, and there's another one called Where There Is No Doctor. You should get those and read those. But if you can get a doctor or a dentist, especially a dentist, in your network, I think that would be good, too. If you can get them coming to your monthly preparedness meetings, if you can get them to start offering advice, if there's somebody, if they're a dentist that thinks about this kind of stuff or a doctor that thinks about this kind of stuff, you know, one of the ways to attract people to come listen and be part of your survival network is to let them know that, hey, you know what, guess what, we're going to have a, a, a dentist uh, talking about dental hygiene and talking about, you know, ways and, and teaching kids about dental hygiene and stuff. And it's going to be free. Come listen. Come to our meeting. They can be great ways. They can be great guest speakers and do little workshops and so forth. Uh, at your meetings to try to attract people to come and get them thinking about the subject of preparedness. And last, but certainly not least, and it's just because the last one I could think of during my show notes as I was putting this together, how about a pilot? Preferably a pilot that owns his own plane or her own plane. I have a sister-in-law who's a pilot. That's why I thought about that. But think about it. If, if it's a disaster out there and the roads are impassable and it's hard to get from point A to point B by ground vehicle, a pilot may come in very handy. Now, I'm sure there's more people you can think of. And so I'm going to go ahead, when I close this podcast right now, I'm going to put out a call to you. And I want you to join our forum, and I'm going to start a thread about this show. And I want you to think about people to put into your survival network and people that you should get to know. And if I've missed anything, because I'm sure I have, 
I want you to go ahead and put it on the forum. Join the forum, become a member, start building your network, and tell me what I've forgot. Because in this show, I tried to talk about some of the basics of preparing first, and then I talked about how to organize, how to delegate, what types of locations to use, how often to meet, and so forth, and then who to get together in your survival network and who to network with and hopefully I've given you some good ideas for that. Kind of a short show but I just wanted to keep you thinking and and get you thinking about the people side of this because survival is a people business I believe and not a lot of podcasters talk about that you know I mean I don't hear too many people talk about the people aspects of this. I don't hear very many podcasters and I don't read a lot of survival blogs about how to work and manage people That's, that's a big skill in post-disaster survival. I really believe it is, and I just don't see much of it out there, so I wanted to put this show on. Now, if you get my CD, I'm going to talk more about people skills. If you get my CD or my digital downloads, I want to put out one more um, plug about that. Go to todayssurvival.com, click the Buy Now button, and click the um, Combo CD. There's a page in the upper right-hand corner of Today's Survival Show where you can click that, and you can learn more about the CD that I'm putting out in the digital download. I will get into this subject about networking and building your sphere of influence a little bit more. But for now, thanks for listening to episode number 114, because my name is Bob Main, and I am your host here at today's survival show and it's my goal to help you harness the power of choice to live life the way you want to live it on your own terms and strengthen your resolve and build a good network my goal is to keep survival simple not extreme i hope you've enjoyed this program folks thanks for tuning in and i'll catch you next time goodbye send lawyers guns and money this shit has hit the fan and money.